Okay, uh, I'm gonna get started. A um, couple of things to start off. Uh, it's the end of the day, so I'm sorry. Um, I'll try to keep this. Well, it's long, so it's <laughs> it's gonna you know hopefully it won't be too much. Uh, it's not gonna be a relief. That's the problem. Um, but little children, little problems. Big children, big problems. We're in the school area, so I'm glad that there's a reflection there. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you try to talk to other people about what you're doing at Mockingbird. You um, try to say theology and pop culture. Uh, and yesterday I was at drinks with, um, with a cousin of mine, and he has no idea what Mockingbird is. And uh, his wife is a PR person. And she's like, oh, are you an influencer? And I was like, what does that mean? Well, an influencer apparently has um, a lot of followers on Instagram, things like that. Um, has, an, has an Instagram <laughs> or you know a Twitter account. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine recently. I put the hashtag after what I was saying, so <laughs> not so technical hashtag. Um, yeah, and so I was thinking, okay, am I an influencer? Definitely not an influencer. I think I'm more an imposter, you know? So, and the weird thing about imposters is that I actually am the only true imposter, you know? Everybody else that's just, they, they actually are part of the club. So, um, for all of you who know much more about Bonhoeffer than I do, um, feel free to correct me afterwards. Um, so, so yeah, so let's get started. Uh, what I have here is just some thoughts on, um, on Bonhoeffer, on cheap grace. Uh, I'm planning to talk for about maybe 20 to 30 minutes. I might cut some stuff if I see people falling asleep. And then hopefully we'll have some time for questions afterwards. Uh, so let's dive into it. So, chances are if you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it is because of his dramatic story. He was a pastor and theologian who was executed for his involvement in the German resistance during the Second World War, as we heard earlier. Most likely you know about his most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, and are familiar with its central opposition of cheap grace and cost of grace. The problem is that the popular interpretation of these terms can create some confusion regarding Bonhoeffer's theology. If grace can be cheap, is cost of grace something we have to earn? Isn't the whole point that grace is free? Taken at face value, which it too often is, the schema of cheap and costly grace can be problematic for sufferers in a world of expectation. Please don't tell me grace is another thing we have to accomplish, to win, to claim for ourselves. Suddenly we're faced with the cruelest bait and switch. Grace is actually annexed territory of the accusatory law, something which tauntingly demands what we cannot produce. This sounds like the opposite of the grace that we know. Here at Mockingbird, we cherish what Paul Zoll calls the one-way love Christ gives us, freely and without conditions. God's grace is so deeply unmerited that it is all the sweeter when it is received as a gift by faith at the foot of the cross. And I am really privileged to be speaking at Mockingbird because I've been coming to some of the conferences and known people for a while, so I'm really happy that I was invited. Again, as an imposter, but still. <laughs> um, so we catch a glimpse of this radical grace in John, Dun uh, John Dunn's poem, A Hymn to God the Father. Now, it's an old poem, so excuse me if I get caught up in all the vows and these. So, a hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? 
Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that, wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear, that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself, that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now, and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. So that's, I think, it communicates a little bit of the grace that we're talking about. So in this breakout session, I want to take a fresh look at Bonhoeffer's understanding of grace and related themes which are dear to Mockingbird. I hope that by looking at some of his lesser-known texts, along with some interludes from other sources so that we kind of get away from all the heaviness, we come to recognize how Bonhoeffer stays true to a radical view of God's grace, one that promises relief for us today. If we want to know what Bonhoeffer makes of grace, we would do well to start with his sermons, which served as the incubator for his reflection on the cross. Bonhoeffer repeatedly used the pulpit to proclaim the unique character of Christianity in the crucified Christ. The importance of preaching the cross is evident during Bonhoeffer's years in Barcelona from 1928 to 1929, where at the ripe age of 22, he assumed his first pastoral call in a small German expat congregation. Here we see the contours of Bonhoeffer's budding theology of grace start to take shape. One sermon in particular stands out from the period on 2 Corinthians 12.9. It writes, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So that's Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Bonhoeffer uses this as an opportunity to contrast what he calls religion with the singular message of the cross. He comments, Why is there religion? What is its real meaning and purpose? If we pose this question to various religions around the world, we get one answer, to make human beings happy, both externally and inwardly. This is, however, nothing to celebrate. Quite the contrary. Focusing on human happiness makes the individual the center of the world and the ultimate value of religion. Bonhoeffer characterizes the difference with Christianity thus. But what does the Bible have to say here? It puts its finger on one single event, one single sign, and leaves it to us to reflect on the cross of Jesus. Here something unprecedented happened. The equation between religion and happiness is sundered once and for all on the cross, where God dies in love for human beings. Or does someone perhaps want to speak about inward happiness, where Jesus, the emissary of God, dies with the cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? Religion and happiness, both internal and external, are sundered in this unknown, incomprehensible word. Grace, love, not as a new event on earth, but as a new word of God. And this word was not spoken over the imperial throne of a messianic world empire, nor over the heights of humanity, but over the hill of criminals, where a devout man dies with that God-forsaken cry. This clearly distinguishes Christianity from all other religions from the outset. Here is grace, there happiness, here the cross, there the crown, here God, there the human being. My grace is sufficient for you. That is the message of the cross. Seize happiness, that 
is a message of paganism. Amen. In these penetrating phrases, it is clear that even in Bonhoeffer's time, carpe diem was the world's gospel, as it continues to be today. Religion only serves its purpose if it is co-opted into our projects for self-fulfillment and comfort, if it can be filtered on Instagram and curated on Facebook. Religion is another way we strive to make something of ourselves and prove to others our value and worth. But the grace of God enters the world with a completely different word, the word of grace heard in the cosmic cries of a crucified Savior. Such love for us is as incomprehensible as it is undeserved. We can only behold it in awe and receive it with gratitude. Why? Because it is not about us or our happiness. Instead, it crucifies our glossy illusions about ourselves because Christ had to die because of who we are, because of our fatal paths to happiness. It demonstrates to us every day to what extent we need God's grace because of our deeply ingrained and persistent sin. As he continues this sermon, Bonhoeffer recognizes the desperation Christians can feel when they encounter real suffering and God feels absent or uncaring leaving us only with the words, my grace is sufficient for you. At the death of a loved one, in the ruins of a broken life, with recidivist tendencies and sin always lurking at the door, all we hear is this word from God. For Bonhoeffer, only those who have experienced the power of these words in the midst of suffering can understand that they are true and that there is a reality in the world that is much, much more terrible, one arising from religion and from morality. In other words, while the law of happiness is a crushing curse, the word of grace, which may seem ineffectual to us, reveals the mysterious power of God to be strong in our frailty. This is good news. As Bonhoeffer puts it, speaking of the reality of our sin in a way that echoes Romans 7, have a look at Jesus and then just as closely at yourself and you will shudder. This is how it is. Evil, sin, what is base remains in control in us, and we remain in its spell as long as we live. And we would surely despair of the good, of the sacred, of ourselves, and of God himself if we were not given this assurance, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As with Luther, then, God's grace is sub contrario, appearing under the form of its opposite. On the one hand, religion promises happiness, but is the reason for our unrest. Grace, on the other, is, quote, something that cannot be seen, something we never directly perceive in our lives. Quite the contrary. It is something improbable and incredible, judged according to what we experience here. Yet, it is perceptible to the eyes of faith which believes in God's grace precisely in those moments where it seems most implausible and absurd. These are the times when we are to behold the cross, where God took up and bore all misery and all guilt, and in so doing, poured out his love upon all who bear heavy burdens. This is when we recognize how, in Bonhoeffer's words, where human hearts are shattered, there God moves in. Where life is smashed against the rocks of reality, the light of divine help suddenly shines forth. Yeah, he's, he's not very light. Um, he loves getting into the nitty-gritty. Um, and this is the true hope of humanity. So let Bonhoeffer's closing thoughts in this sermon sink into you. Do not hope in this world for happiness. 
do not hope for fulfillment, where the entire disaster of humanity, all its yearnings and all its inevitable resignation become most clear above the misery and guilt of the big cities, New York City is not included here, obviously. <laughs> In the houses of the tax collectors and sinners, above the institutions of human misery and suffering, above the graces of our loved ones, in the hearts of those who have lost their joy in life, in the breast of those who are unable to right themselves again because of their own sin and guilt, there the message of divine grace triumphs. Here unseen, there in glory. Here improbably, there as reality. Here as lightning on the horizon of the ages, there as the flashing light of eternity. We no longer behold ourselves, we look to the cross, where God can approach us in love. In this sermon, then, we catch a glimpse of Bonhoeffer's understanding of grace, where the world offers us the burden of fabricating a chimeric happiness. The cross provides a stark reality check, the reality of our sin and the reality of God's enduring grace given freely to us now and forever. G.K. Chesterton illustrates this uniqueness of Christianity among the world religions beautifully in orthodoxy, when he contrasts Buddhism with Christianity. He remarks, Buddhism is centripetal, but Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. For the circle is perfect and infinite in its nature, but it is fixed forever in its size. But the cross, though it has at its heart a collision and a contradiction, can extend its four arms forever without altering its shape. Because it has a paradox in its center, it can grow without changing. The circle returns upon itself and is bound. The cross opens its arms to the four winds. It is a signpost for free travelers. The great thing about Bonhoeffer is I don't really need to do much. He's doing, he's doing all the heavy lifting. It is telling to see how the cross features front and center as Bonhoeffer preaches in the years leading to Hitler's rise to power in 1933. After a short stint in New York, Bonhoeffer returned to Berlin in 1931, where he was ordained, and became involved in a number of different ministries. This was the busiest time in his life, on top of his lectureship in theology at the University of Berlin. Needless to say, this was a time of reckoning for Germany, as well as the German Protestant Church, where some Christians allied themselves with the pro-Nazi German Christian movement that baptized anti-Semitism and allegiance to the Fuhrer, Bonhoeffer and other dissenting pastors created the Confessing Church, which condemned this twisted interpretation of the scriptures. During this period, from 1931 to 33, Bonhoeffer formulated his theological arguments against Nazism and outlined the possibilities of Christian resistance against the state, most notably in his essay, The Church and the Jewish Question. Many of the themes that Bonhoeffer would be best known for, which we might consider incompatible with relief, such as responsibility, and obedience to the will of God appear in his writings during this period and keep appearing uh, for the rest of his theology and writings. Yet, in the sermons of these years, it becomes clear how Bonhoeffer integrates these themes into the fabric of the cross and grace. Preaching on Psalm 63, verse 3, which reads, Your steadfast love is better than life, Bonhoeffer reflects upon the effects of grace and thanksgiving for the Christian life. At first, we hear the, un the completely unmerited mercy of God that spurs us to adore him. He preaches. This is one of those Bible passages that never lets go of anyone who has once understood it. 
a passage that only seems to be shining so gently, but on the inside is hard and flashes out fire, a word of strong emotion evoked when two worlds collide, the world of human beings and the world of God. That is a word from the world of the Bible and not from our world. Bonhoeffer imagines that believers are like the psalmist, wrestling with God as Jacob did. God encounters us and says, if you want my loving kindness, give me the last thing you have, your very life. God requires of us nothing less than what is most important to us, our life itself. And this produces a reaction. Receiving God's grace should elicit a new outward orientation towards the neighbor, as we heard earlier, acknowledging and responding to the needs of others. So Bonhoeffer continues, if we want to understand God's loving kindness in God's gift to us, we must see them as responsibility for our neighbor. No one should say, God has blessed me with money and possessions, and then live now as if he and his loving God were alone in the world. Then the hour will come when he must see that he has worshipped the false God of his own happiness and selfishness. The blessing and loving kindness of God are not possessions, but responsibility. Lest we think this somehow diminishes grace, or veers into works righteousness, or presents us with a condemning achievement quota for our Christian lives, it is important to see that for Bonhoeffer, this taking up of responsibility is a cruciform process. In repentance, we recognize our failure and commit ourselves anew to responsibility towards our neighbors. Again and again, Christ asks us, what is my love worth to you? Again and again, we answer everything, even our lives. Through this process of confession and rededication, we come to a fuller understanding of God's grace, which in turn equips us to serve him. In other words, as Bonhoeffer puts it, the more deeply we recognize what God's loving kindness is, the more filled with life our answer to him will be. Again and again, we are led anew by God's loving kindness to take responsibility and through our guilt led to God. For Bonhoeffer, then, the relief of grace is met with responsibility to relieve others, the sufferer's call to walk alongside fellow sufferers. The cross replaces our aspirations for happiness with the concrete needs of the world, a call to respond in gratitude to the gifts we have been given by entering into the suffering of others. Although our service may fail and our guilt prevail, the cross brings us continually to the promise and purpose of God's never-changing love towards us. So, responsibility, as Bonhoeffer understands it, is not another burden in a world of expectation, but a gift given with grace, one that we are equipped by God to fulfill, and when we fail, because we will fail, to continually repent and recommit ourselves to the task. So, responsibility is not law, but part of the gospel we have been given. Oswald Beyer helps clarify how this is possible in his book, Living by Faith, Justification and Sanctification. Justification by faith opens an entirely new situation in which we are free to forget ourselves. Justification by faith opens an... Oh, I, I just said that. Um, <laughs> he reasons, those who are born anew are no longer entangled with themselves. They are solidly freed from this entanglement, from the self-reflection that always seeks what belongs to itself. We move, as Bonhoeffer does in the poem, Who Am I?, from focus on ourselves to focus on God. His poem, Who Am I?, ends with the lines, Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Mm -hmm. Freed from this anxious introspection, we are able to serve others naturally and spontaneously. 
doing whatever your hands find to do, as Luther says. Genuine works, therefore, spring forth from justified faith. The law is not abolished, but fulfilled by a willing heart that is given by the Holy Spirit. Responsibility in this light is the gift of Christian freedom. We see a similar change in perspective when we consider obedience in the light of grace. Leading a devotional on the devil's temptation of Jesus to college students, Bonhoeffer relates the story of the, this story to the Reformation. He comments, Christ on the cross, that was the message with which Paul set out. That was his God. That was the God for whom the first martyrs died. It was the God that Luther rediscovered. It is the same God whom we of today are beginning to understand in a new way. This God is characterized by hiddenness. Bonhoeffer speaks of Christ on the cross, Christ the hidden king of the hidden kingdom. That is the message of the Protestant church. For Bonhoeffer, what is powerful about Christ's rejection of Satan is his obedience to the will of God and choosing the path of the cross rather than glory. The price of glory is too high, disobedience to the Father and slavery to Satan. Instead, Jesus chooses loneliness, scorn, persecution, torture, and death on the cross because this is the path of obedience, the way of true freedom, the path given by God, and the only path of love for other human beings. As Bonhoeffer explains, the path of God is to carry the cross through the world. It is not to flee the world, but instead to enter it in obedience to the Father. Therefore, the church is a church under the cross, hidden from view, laboring for a hidden kingdom. If the only visible sign of God in the world is the cross, then, Bonhoeffer says, the path of Jesus' disciples does not lead peaceably, peacefully and safely straight into heaven. Rather, they too must pass through the darkness through the cross. From this, we can begin to see why Bonhoeffer stresses obedience and likes to cite 1 John Chapter 5, verse 3, your commandments are not burdensome. The theology of the cross and grace at its center are premised on Christ's obedience to the will of God. If disciples are to carry the cross, they must labor under the same cross and strive towards obedience. Yet in this endeavor, it is the obedience of Christ that motivates our obedience. To understand the full gravity of Christ's suffering and sacrifice, that is, the grace given to us in his life and death, makes the commandment sweet and lovely to us. When we see, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, as it says in Psalm 34, 8, we are able to endure the suffering that lies on the path of discipleship. We are able to embrace the hiddenness of the kingdom, which goes unnoticed by the world. Albeit counterintuitive, then, obedience should, ideally, be easier and not another burden in a world of expectation. Interestingly, Bonhoeffer, who often struggled with indecision, relates grace and the cross to decision-making. So for all of you who are struggling with big decisions, here's a little you know, uh, shout-out to you. Um, on the text, 2 Chronicles 20.12, which reads, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Bonhoeffer doesn't provide much of a solution to the problem. The cross is no guarantee that God will make things clear to us when we reach a turning point in our lives, and many of us know this frustrating truth all too well. Instead, believers can take comfort in the promise of the cross. As Bonhoeffer writes, in this world, we see only the cross. We also see ourselves only as those who stand condemned under the cross, as those who do not know what they should do. But in the cross, we believe in life. In sin, we believe in God. In hiddenness, we believe in the revealed. In the hidden commandment, we believe in the revealed commandment. 
We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, on the Lord, on the risen Lord. We do not know what to do because we stand damned under the cross and our paths are at an end. Part of the cross, then, is the painful unknowing, the perpetual waiting, the unanswered questions about our lives. Yet the grace of the cross, the relief given in faith, is to rest in the faithfulness of God, to trust that what we do venture is offered under the cross and is subject to God's merciful judgment. We can only pray that we are not overcome by the weight of indecision and that God will show himself in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our waiting, even somehow as he remains hidden. The paradoxes are crazy. Um, Sometimes we have to acknowledge that for reasons only God knows, he withholds relief from us. In those moments, we cling to the faithfulness of God and act asking for his blessing on the path we do take. The last sermon I want to look at is about the cross and fear. It reminds me of my favorite song from the prog rock band Flying Colors called The Storm. It goes like this. The storm, we will dance as it breaks. The storm, it will give as it takes. All of our pain is washed away. Don't cry or be afraid. Some things only can be made in the storm. Very, very cool lyrics, I think. Bonhoeffer preached on the story of Jesus calming the storm in Matthew 8 on January 5th, 1933. Already Hitler had come to power and violence had engulfed the nation. The writing was on the wall. Fear was in the hearts of many about the future. As Bonhoeffer describes fear, it is the arch enemy itself, which secretly gnaws and eats away at all the ties that bind a person to God and to others, leading to despair. Ultimately, fear takes away a person's humanity. One reaction we have as Christians is to recognize that the cross conquers our fears. Christ has crucified our fear on the cross and committed it to oblivion. At the same time, however, in this New Testament episode, we are confronted with the doubt of the disciples and the rebuke of Christ. You of little faith, why are you so fearful? This is the hour when we come face to face with our own lack of trust in God and have to take stock of our hearts, Coram Deo, before God. Again, the cross teaches us the sufficiency and necessity of God's grace for our lives. Again, this is like Hitler has come to power and he's preaching this to uh, his congregation. Learn to recognize this sign in your own in your own life. Learn to recognize and understand the hour of the storm when you were perishing. This is a time when God is incredibly close to you, not far away. Right there, when everything else that keeps us safe is breaking and falling down, when at one after another all the things our life depends on are being taken away or destroyed, where we have to learn to give them up. All this is happening because God is coming near to us, because God wants to be our only support and certainty. God lets our lives be broken and fail in every direction through fate and guilt. And through this very failure, God brings us back. We are thrown back upon God alone. God wants to show us that when you let everything go, when you lose all your own security and have to give it up, that is when you are totally free to receive God and be totally safe in God. So may we understand rightly the hours of affliction and temptation, the hours in our lives when we are on the high seas. God is close to us then, not far away. 
I'm staying at seafarers, so I know, I know this all too well. The relief of the cross, then, is that God is near us, even in our greatest fears. The grace of God moves mightily in the storm. It is when we face our fear and run to the cross that God breaks through to us in ways we never knew before. Emily Bronte captures this in her poem, I'll Come When Thou Art Saddest. Again, a tongue twister. I'll come when thou art saddest, laid alone in the darkened room, when the mad days, when the mad days mirth has vanished, and the smile of joy is banished from evening's chilly gloom. I'll come when the heart's real feeling has entire unbiased sway, and my influence over thee stealing, grief deepening, joy congealing, shall bear thy soul away. Listen, tis just the hour, the awful time for thee. Dost thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations roll, forerunners of a sterner power, heralds of me? We have looked at Bonhoeffer's preaching up until 1933, but I want to switch gears and look at a text from the period that made him most famous, when he was a director of the illegal seminary called Finkenwalde, from 1935 to 1937. This is where Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, texts which are considered spiritual classics and the ones that most people read. The trouble here, as indicated above, is that especially in The Cost of Discipleship, grace can sound like yet another impossible expectation placed upon us. Bonhoeffer's phrases are as arresting as they are pithy and direct. Only the believers obey and only the obedient believe. Faith is only faith in deeds of obedience. You should not ask, you should act. Cheap grace is the denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Boom, shakalaka. Okay. We can balk at these phrases and receive them as condemnation. We might think, is that really grace? I don't know if I'm strong enough for that. Later in his life, Bonhoeffer seems to have recognized the risk of this test, this text, stating, Today, I clearly see the dangers of that book, though I still stand by it. People like to quote the first part of this. Okay. When we hear the force of Bonhoeffer's words, we can see why he saw the dangers of the book. One text that is overlooked from this period, however, is called Spiritual Care where Bonhoeffer considers the importance of pastoral care in ministering to Christians. Here we see Bonhoeffer bring the themes we have been considering, grace, the cross, law, and the gospel, together. He addresses the question that I think is close to Mockingbird's heart, how can ministers give grace to members of their congregation who are in desperate need of the gospel? So, all of us. Um, from this less contest contested text, we have a better view of Bonhoeffer's concerns with the whole costly grace, cheap grace, discussion, and discipleship. We can see more clearly how Bonhoeffer was keen to articulate and defend what he saw as a form of grace that can bring us true relief. What's the name of the book? Uh, spiritual Care. So bear with me, there's, there's a couple more things to say. Um, the mission of spiritual care for Bonhoeffer is to lead sinners to repentance for their specific sins. While the sermon provides proclamation to the congregation, Pastoral care is a special sort of proclamation, which is part of the office of preaching, only aimed at the individual. So basically, he's talking about a pastoral meeting with a member of his parish. 
Bonhoeffer resists any psychologizing involved in this encounter. It is simply God wanting to act in the believer. He wants to bring believers forgiveness and new life out of death. This is therefore not a therapeutic psychological exercise where we aim to change our mental state from sadness to happiness. Rather, it is God acting upon sinners to draw them towards repentance in their lives through a one-on-one encounter between the pastor and the parishioner. The problem, as Bonhoeffer sees it, is that, quote, a person is no longer able to hear the gospel. For whatever reason, sometimes we withdraw from the preached word and repentance turns into its opposite, impenitence and callousness. We enter into a loop whereby we hear but do not hear, we receive but are not helped. So really we don't receive. Many of us who have been coming to church for a while can relate to this, a sort of going through the motions where we hear the words of the gospel, but they do not move us as they used to. And this affects our prayer life, our self-understanding, and how we go about our day-to-day lives. For Bonhoeffer, this is where spiritual care is needed as a special diakonia, or service, to, quote, bring people back to the arena of proclamation. The deeper problem at stake here is how sin has come to occupy the believer and bars true repentance that can bring the relief that is needed. A false repentance creeps in that is a veiled form of self-justification. As Bonhoeffer writes, Sin in every instance is something quite concrete. It must be recognized and identified by name. Only the demon which is called by name departs. The word of grace cannot be proclaimed and accepted when a person lives in unrecognized and undisclosed sin. In such a case, the word of grace becomes a poison. It no longer arouses us, but rather lulls us into a deadly quietism. When the effect of the poison has worn off, one still has a disconsolate conscience. Impenitence and callousness become more firmly entrenched. Countless Christians hear the word of grace only in this way. For them, it has become a sleeping pill. The person is cheated out of a salutary life in awe of God. In this state, then, believers are caught in a strange bind. Although they are repeating, uh, repenting outwardly, they are nevertheless holding on to some sin, whether unknown or secret, justifying themselves, and are therefore incapable of receiving the gospel. They are unwilling to give themselves up to God's word or to trust God. Pastoral care, therefore, aims to protect believers from, quote, the specific danger of Protestantism, which is to turn the justification of sinners into the justification of sin. It simply uncovers sin and creates hearers of the gospel. And again, this is the period of the church struggle. So, you know, there are pastors during the Second World War, uh, not, not the Second World War yet, but during, you know, um, the era of Nazism that are, you know, preaching against the Jews and, uh, and are basically calling themselves Christians. So you can see why the language gets stronger here. The law and gospel are crucial for achieving this goal of uncovering sin and creating hearers of the gospel. Spiritual care functions to apply the law and the gospel to believers' lives. The pastor must understand that what is at stake here is the parishioners standing before God, how they are resisting God in a myriad of ways, whether they are accusing God, refusing to accept his will for their life, making excuses for not obeying God's commandments, which is Bonhoeffer's language. Ultimately, what they are doing is fleeing from the word of God. At this point for Bonhoeffer, the law has to be applied for sinners to recognize their sin and repent. He writes, As long as we evade and justify our sins, we must be confronted with the hard law. The principle, sin boldly, 
applies only when a person is driven to despair. Although this might sound harsh, for Bonhoeffer, this is the only way to get at the central issue, which is repentance and forgiveness. When believers confronted by the law are able to push through their pretext and confess their specific sins before God, they receive the only comfort available, real freedom and forgiveness for their sins. Spiritual care, therefore, follows a pattern of law and gospel. The word is applied to the believer's life to lead to repentance and forgiveness. This movement of counsel to commandment, expression of need to confession of sin, speech to hearing the promise, cannot jump over the preliminary stages. The difficult work of identifying and confessing sin, that is, the word of the law, must precede the word of the gospel in order for opposition to God to turn into submission to him. But this delicate process is only possible if the pastor understands that the other person is a sinner whom God's mercy wants to encounter, as Bonhoeffer puts it. Spiritual care, therefore, becomes a form of meditation and struggle with the cross. The pastor knows from the cross that real sinners struggle with all types of real sin, which means that they are not shocked by great sin that is confessed. Rather, quote, at the cross of Christ, we learn to look such things in the eye and in this process become aware of our nearness to others, end quote. This path of the law and the gospel, then, is the path that leads to the cross of Christ and the relief of receiving God's grace. Bonhoeffer warns of two forms of disobedience that the law and the gospel help to combat. Despair is a condition in which people begin to doubt their forgiveness. This is a crisis of assurance, where we believe our pleading for God's forgiveness is only met with self-delusions that we are forgiven. Security, on the other hand, what Bonhoeffer calls the more dangerous form of disobedience, is, quote, to deal too easily with grace. We follow Voltaire's mocking assessment that God forgives because that's his job. It simply assumes forgiveness without repentance. That is grace as a presupposition which is never questioned. Security is Bonhoeffer's way of articulating cheap grace. That grace is abused by being assumed apart from genuine repentance of concrete sins. According to Bonhoeffer, the law and the gospel function to mitigate against these dangers. In explaining how, Bonhoeffer turns to themes that are prominent in the cost of discipleship. What can be done in this event? How can we find help? In general, this is what the law gospel dialectic is for. The law must be preached just so that law does not lead to despair. The gospel must be preached just so that gospel does not lead to security. The same is true of obedience and forgiveness. The two must remain tightly connected to each other. Forgiveness without obedience leads one to a facile dealing with grace. The demand for obedience without a proclamation of forgiveness would drive a person to perplexity. Only he who is obedient believes. Only he who is faithful obeys. There is a principle here for spiritual care. The law must be contained in the gospel, and the gospel must be contained in the law. As Bonhoeffer clarifies, law and gospel coexist in spiritual care. One cannot be offered without the other. But what this means is that Christian grace, that is true relief from our sins, comes from a painful recognition of all our sins and their force. We have to come face to face with the startling reality of who we are, withholding nothing from God. Through the law, we are confronted with how undeniable and unjustifiable our sin is. We cannot hide anything from God. Yet the law remains holy, righteous, and good. It is not meant to bring us to despair, to a belief that we can never be forgiven. Instead, from the recognition of sin, we are driven to Christ and given the gospel, the full force of God's mercy and grace, to receive freely and gladly. 
Yet for Bonhoeffer, if God's grace is assumed without repentance of sin, then it is really a form of self-delusion where we are forgiving ourselves without actually going to God and giving him our sins. So basically we take God out of the equation and it becomes a formula we do for our own self-comfort. For God to forgive us, we have to present him with our concrete sins and then we will have concrete forgiveness. That is true freedom. It is at this point where you might think that Bonhoeffer's theology of grace is limited, where there is no balm to the cost of discipleship sting. Sure, it makes sense that the law and the gospel should be applied in pastoral care, and that this requires painful repentance of concrete sins. But when Bonhoeffer pushes back against security, which, let's face it, is a veiled term for antinomianism, you might think that he goes too far. Isn't that precisely the purpose of grace, that we would feel secure in our standing with God? because grace abounds more than our sins? <coughs> yes. Um, I think this is where we encounter the tricky both and in Bonhoeffer's understanding of grace. As we have seen, Bonhoeffer understands the full power and relief of grace offered in the cross, how it is the defining characteristic of Christianity and what gives true freedom in this life. Bonhoeffer does not limit the full force of grace. It is life-changing and overflowing. At the same time, Responsibility and obedience are embedded into the cross, the gospel, and the life of faith. The obedience of Christ precedes and compels us. Through our recognition of Christ's sacrifice for us, we are moved towards responsibility in the world. This requires a constant reckoning with our sin and repentance, a hard look at the darkness within us to renounce it and commit ourselves anew to God. Costly grace in this light is not heroic self-assertion, but the cruciform path of Christian humility. It is the ultimate humiliation that Christ had to die for our sins and the ultimate affirmation that he did so in infinite love for us. It is the genuine form of relief that God offers us, which is a well, which is as well a wonderful task, a life of gratitude and self-giving. So as Bonhoeffer puts it, and I've taken this from a cost of, the cost of discipleship, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. It is costly because it condemns sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God, because it costs God the life of God's Son. You were bought with a price and because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. What does this last line mean? I don't know really, I mean, it's so enigmatic. Grace is so precious that when we actually grasp it, when we actually get it, Maybe those 7.5 seconds we were talking about earlier. We become living expressions of Christ in the world through the Holy Spirit. Mysteriously and powerfully, God equips us to do his kingdom work. When we forget these things, when we play fast and loose with the cross, when we are Christians without repentance, that is when we fall victim to cheap grace. I want to end in typical Mockingbird fashion, talking about something else entirely that may or may not bring us back to the point. You're going to have to connect the dots. Recently, I attended an interesting lecture by an academic, Frank Birch Brown. He specializes in religion and the arts. 
His lecture was titled The Art of Forgiveness. And it was about the different ways forgiveness is depicted in visual media. So it would fit in right here. His lecture, uh, in his lecture, we looked at the example of forgiveness in the 1986 film The Mission and the 1989 film The Straight Story. Now notice how all of my references were like pre-18th century, and I have to use him to get references now. <laughs> um, but the first, the mission, is a powerful picture of a mercenary's penitence before the victims of his former violence. And the second offers a heartfelt, quirky, true story of a man who drove his lawnmower across the country to reconcile with his dying brother. During the questions following the lecture, someone asked if forgiveness itself can be artful. Birch Brown paused for a long time and answered that there is a certain amount of creativity in acts of forgiveness and how they unfold, though they are always particular to the given situation. Although we like to think forgiveness is easily or instantly given, Paul's be quick to forgive, history and experience show us this can be a painful and drawn-out process. And I am not an example of forgiveness. Um, but every story of forgiveness, despite its historicity, provides insight into what forgiveness is, writ large. When we think of Bonhoeffer's theology of grace, we would do well to see it through this lens, that is to locate it within the specific historical moment from which it was born, and yet to appreciate the insight that it continues to offer us today. Costly grace was a necessary stance in a time when pastors were preaching anti-Semitism and the cross together, when they were enjoying the luxuries of the Nazi party and turning a blind eye later to the Holocaust, when the allure of complacency and the price of the gospel were competing forces tearing a country apart. Although we may be tempted now to dismiss Bonhoeffer's theology of grace as belonging to a moment of crisis, it nevertheless remains true for us today. The relief of grace in a world of expectation is that Christ does save us, he does carry us, and he will bring us home. It is one-way love that captivates us and continues to convert our wandering hearts to the living God throughout our lives. And yet, it is a grace that brings us continually to our knees before the cross in repentance, pleading with Jesus for his forgiveness and to renew our hearts to serve him. If Jesus Christ himself has been given to us in grace, then grace, though costly, is the most beautiful and joyous thing in this world and the world to come. It is to this grace that Bonhoeffer points us. Thank you.